This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Saris, maker of indoor trainers, power meters, so and bike racks. All right, Rachel, what are we doing? Putting my bike on this new bike rack. Not only do they offer a lifetime warranty on their products, but 90% of the raw materials are sourced within 120 miles of where they're manufactured in Madison, Wisconsin. That's just a long bike ride away. What is this? <gasps> it's a lock! Sarah's products are built by cyclists for cyclists. And you can tell. Take their updated Super Clamp, an extremely durable, easy-to-install hitch rack that now has wider wheel trays to fit bigger tires, as well as a locking system built right in. So I just loop it through the frame anywhere? Uh-huh. And the Super Clamp is exactly what you'd expect from the kind of company that dedicates $100,000 every year to bicycle advocacy. Oh my goodness. That's really easy. Or the kind of company that every spring rolls down to a bike path in Madison to serve brat cakes to commuters. That's a bratwurst wrapped in a pancake smothered in syrup. Sarah served more than 900 of them last year to encourage more people to ride to work. Because whether it's bikes or breakfast or just making a rack really easy to use, Sarah knows what cyclists really want. What'd you say? It's, it's idiot. Well, don't say that. <laughs> From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. (sighs) Looking back at it now, seven years later, what's remarkable about Leland Earl's thru-hike of the Pacific Crest Trail is how even a tiny bit of moderation in any number of decisions might have completely changed its experience on the trip. I'd, I'd say the most harrowing... Um, and eventful of my thru-hikes was the first one, which wasn't even really a thru-hike. It was 2010, and Leland was setting out on the PCT as a kind of bridge between college and adulthood. One of our regular producers, Alex Ward, was with him. They had both just graduated from the University of Oregon. And so, yeah, he'd, he'd just been planning on it for years, and he knew he wanted to do it. And I, I knew I'd known about the trail. I'd grown up hearing about it. And he was dead set. He was like, I've been waiting my whole life to do something like this. And not just something like this. He'd been waiting his whole life to do this specific trail, ever since he was a kid. My dad doesn't remember it at all, but I think we were going over Snoqualmie Pass. And I think my dad said, you know, there's a trail that goes all the way from Mexico. It crosses right here. Uh, People actually walk that. And he doesn't even remember saying that ever, but that stuck with me. I remember looking kind of like frenzied, looking around like, where? Where's this trail? I mean, I didn't see anything. I just saw mountains all around. Really? I, I think that put it on my radar, and it was pretty quick. Even before I was done with high school, I knew that I was going to do that. Epic trips were always this thing he was working towards. And in fact, a lot of his life has been saving up money to fund Adventure XYZ. That's this big epic thing. So Leland had this goal, and I think we're safe calling it a fixation. He wanted to hike the whole trail, Mexico to Canada. But as he was getting ready for the trip, all he heard about was ultralight this, titanium that, how to reduce your base weight, how to reduce your foot weight, etc. This makes sense because ultralight backpacking was popularized on the Pacific Crest Trail. And if you've ever met a thru-hiker, it's pretty much all they talk about. But it rubbed Leland the wrong way. He's a contrarian in, um, in a lot of ways, for certain. And 
when someone tells him to go left, he goes right. If someone says he can't do it, he will. Um, and I, I've never met somebody with more willpower to like accomplish something they said they would do. If he says like I'm going to do this, he he will he will do it. So as he prepared for the trip, he decided to ignore conventional wisdom and do his own thing. Instead of buying stuff on the cutting edge of hiking technology, Leland picked out gear that was mostly the kind of stuff you'd find at an army surplus store. Instead of buying dehydrated meals, or even the rice and beans and quinoa that some hikers prefer, he's just going to eat nuts and fruit and chocolate. And let's just acknowledge that his problem wasn't that he was unprepared. He was just ignoring anything anyone tried to tell him. He couldn't be the first person to thru-hike 2,500 miles. But as he decided what to bring, he could make choices no one else had ever made. Didn't you have a wrist rocket? I did. I thought it was important to have a slingshot um, because I figured to supplement the nuts, I would probably want to, you know, uh, kill things, get some fresh meat. Fresh meat in my system would keep me strong, keep me going. Um, But... I didn't know how many rocks there were in the desert and rocks. When I practiced with my wrist rocket, it was really hard to get an accurate shot. Um, So I thought it was important that the kill shots, I used ball bearings because those are heavy and they would um, fly straight and true. And I pictured myself, you know, slaying a rattlesnake and filleting it out there and putting my kill shot back in my backpack and keep walking, cooking it up in the evening. I didn't even think about weight. Uh, Ball bearings are heavy as it turns out. Also in his pack was a camp chair to sit on at night, and many, many extra layers of clothes to hike in. And where most thru-hikers wore running shoes that they replaced several times on the trail, Leland's final middle finger to the concept of going light were massive leather work boots that he thought would last the whole trip. What did your bag weigh when you uh, started? Um... Well, I was contrary to weighing my bag because all of those assholes that you and I had met before would tell us their pack weight. You know, like, I, I don't know, my pack weighs seven pounds. That's the base weight. You know, what's your base weight? And it's, I don't know yet. So I never actually weighed my backpack. I know that I needed help putting it on. They started out on the border with Mexico. Leland actually jumped the small fence and ran over and slapped the border wall. Because if he was going to hike from Mexico to Canada, he had to touch Mexico and touch Canada. Anything less would be an incomplete hike. In fact, when it came to the physical logistics of the whole journey, he actually had it down. He knew his route, his daily mileage. He'd mailed himself food and supplies at proper intervals along the way. He also knew that the most precious resource in the first few days of the PCT is water. And he had plenty. Water is really important in the desert. Um, isn't that, isn't that what you hear (laughs) when it's, when it's dry, you have to drink water and when it's hot and I'm going to be hiking all day with this pack that I've packed full of such useful possessions, I better have lots of water to stay hydrated, um, to walk between sources. So I wasn't sure how far I would be walking, but I knew I needed to have the capacity and drink as much as I could because I'd be losing a lot of it through my sweat. Did you consider how much the water would weigh? No. I didn't consider how much anything would weigh. I was just going to be really tough. But the thing about water, as we'll see, is that it can bring you to your knees in several different ways, no matter how tough you are. Today on The Science of Survival, we're talking about weight, water, and walking. 
I'm your host, Peter Frickwright, and on this episode, we're going to follow Leland and Alex through the Southern California portion of their hike and look at how much you actually need to drink in the desert heat. Because if you're anything like me and Alex, and especially Leland, you probably think you know how to properly hydrate yourself. But the truth is, much of the information we rely on has come from people who are trying to sell us something. And the results have been bad, sometimes tragic. But as Alex and Leland started on their trip, their first concern wasn't hydration. Their first concern was the fact that Leland's durable, rugged work boots were giving him durable, rugged blisters. I had these seams in the backs of my boots that were digging into my heels and creating these, at first, blisters, and then they turned into large, um, eventually golf ball-sized um, sacks of pus. He was really starting to struggle in that second and third day. Just each step, the pack was so heavy that it would move him a little bit that way. So you can imagine how inefficient that is when every step the pack then shifts you a few more inches that way and then you come back the other way and so his feet were really starting to hurt and that was I think the main thing for him started with the feet the backs of my feet were these big black golf balls do you remember that it looked like someone had super glued like a walnut (laughs) onto the back of your heel but it was kind of like black and blue and clear so it was like a or a big marble that's what it looked it was like a big purple marble that someone had, had hot glued onto your heel. I'd never seen anything like I still haven't ever seen anything. I've like never it. seen anything like it since. No way. It's the only time I've ever heard of anything like that. Um it was it it was beautiful in a way. Yeah, you could say that. It was shiny. Um but uh, needless to say that was uh, that became incredibly painful. And as they got bigger, they would drag on the backs of my boots and it turned into pretty much some of the worst pain I've ever experienced. And when did um, like water become a concern? Leland was really sensitive about water in terms of needing to have enough. He was very wary of the desert. He respected the desert a lot. And so he's carrying, you know, five, six liters of water at a time, even more sometimes. That's crazy. Yeah. That's so much. That's got to be 15, 20 pounds. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of water. And he was, that's his thing. He's like, like, I'm not going to have it. Like, I'll carry the extra weight. I'm not going to be someone who doesn't have enough water in the desert. As far as we can tell, the study of dehydration starts in 17th century Italy, when a professor named Santorio Santorio, who was a friend of Galileo's, tried to figure out how much fluid the body lost through perspiration. He put subjects on a huge platform scale for days and weighed everything that went in the body and everything that came out, subtracting to find the difference. Galileo himself was a subject at one point. In fact, historians think that this was perhaps the first quantitative medical experiment ever. But we didn't really understand what purpose hydration served until a cholera epidemic swept through London 200 years later, in the 1830s, and doctors figured out that taking in water had something to do with maintaining a balance between salts and fluids in the blood. That discovery, by an Irish medical student, revolutionized treatment and saved thousands of lives all over the world. And we now know that dehydration leads to all sorts of very real, very serious problems. Because without enough water in your body, your cells can't utilize oxygen, and you can't cool yourself, so you risk heat stroke, as well as severe muscle cramps, seizures, 
maybe even kidney failure. But when it came to what you might call athletic hydration, it wasn't until the 20th century that science made any real progress. Up through the 1930s, elite and amateur athletes alike were instructed not to drink water during competition because it was thought to deplete their energies. Running an entire marathon without drinking any water was thought to be the pinnacle of athletic achievement. And that was fine until World War II, when the U.S. began preparing for a campaign in North Africa, and the military realized that it had no idea how thirst actually affected the body. And that was a liability. In July of 1942, German troops penetrated British lines in Egypt, but had to surrender when their water ran out. It was no coincidence that a month later, U.S. troops began experiments to see what really happens to soldiers in the heat. They gathered data by sending GIs on hikes and measuring input and output, just like Santorio Santorio. Some hikes were simple, and soldiers were followed by a water truck and weighed every hour. Other hikes were impossible, and scientists watched just to see when the men would quit. One of these impossible hikes was at night, early on in their testing. Soldiers were asked to walk and engage the enemy in a war game at daybreak. Some men carried guns, others just packs. By midnight, everyone's water was gone. In the early morning, it became clear that they weren't going to make it to the battlefield. And as they kept walking, some abandoned their weapons, making them useless as a fighting force. About half fell hopelessly behind. Morale became very low. Considerable anxiety was expressed concerning water. That's A.H. Brown, or at least that's Alex's best impression of what he might have sounded like. Brown wrote up the incident in a report. Two men were observed to become exhausted and somewhat hysterical. At least one man opened a cactus and chewed it. Instead of meeting the opposing maneuver force, the detachment accosted a hospital truck with water at 10.30 a.m. The men were unable to wait in line long enough to get water and confusedly competed for it. Brown pulled the plug on the hike soon after. But there were many more experiments. Soldiers walked in the day, in the night, in uniforms, or nothing but their boots and skivvies, getting thirsty. The fluid became as precious as life itself. Physiologists rode behind them as they walked, making observations. They measured everything in, they measured everything out. And though one scientist noted the unreliability of asking infantrymen to collect their own urine, they were, over time, able to figure out exactly how much water someone needed to survive, and when they would start to wilt. They found that on a 100 degree day, men at rest sweat 5 ounces an hour, while men walking in the sun sweat a full quart. That's 2 pounds of water in just 60 minutes, although it does include the water vapor they were breathing out, which one recent study showed can account for 16% of weight loss over 90 minutes of exercise. They used those numbers to project how much water a soldier would need to travel a given distance at a certain temperature. Then they made them do it, to see if they were right. They walked to exhaustion, and to the point of uncooperation. In the winter, they took their experiments to the University of Rochester and put men in a hot room set to 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Then they denied the men water and measured their sweating for eight hours. Then they set the room to 118 and did a 48-hour version of the test. Men became emotionally unstable. Overall, the tests led to a set of rules and recommendations for desert travel. But for civilian purposes, their biggest finding, and you may have heard of this, was the fact that as they marched through the heat, 
Thirsty soldiers with unlimited access to water drank only half as much as they sweat out. The sensation of thirst didn't keep up with fluid loss. In extreme heat, it can't be trusted. And over time, this one little factoid changed everything we thought we knew about hydration. Do you remember how often you were stopping to drink water? I think I was stopping all the time because whenever I'd stop, and I think I'd find a hill to kind of like fall down on so I'd be able to get back up again and you'd get my water out for me, my canteen or whatever it was, and I would drink as much as I could so I wouldn't run out between water sources. But then at water sources, I, I would drink and drink and drink. And he knows that the more he drinks, the lighter his pack gets. It was just this crazy just water pump that was going throughout Leland's whole system. The idea that we need to outdrink our thirst traces back to those army studies in the desert. But it didn't start to go mainstream for 20 years. In 1965, Dr. Robert Cade and a team of researchers at the University of Florida mixed water, sodium, sugar, potassium, phosphate, and lemon juice and gave it to players on the Florida Gators football team. The taste made some of them sick, but others said it gave them a competitive edge, preventing muscle cramps and giving them a boost in the fourth quarter. Cade's team called it Gator Aid, and over the next 30 years, it became a fixture on the sidelines of all kinds of team sports and at aid stations in marathons and triathlons. Its growth coincided with the jogging boom of the 1970s and 80s, and it worked as a business because, one, they added a lot of sugar to make it taste better, and two, because Gatorade was able to sell people on the idea that dehydration made them slow and weak. Right now, your body's thirsty for more than water. You're working your body till you can't do more. And it traded on the idea that if you felt thirsty, it was already too late. It turned fluid loss into an insidious, scary condition, always sneaking up on you. When you exercise, you lose potassium, fluids, minerals. Gatorade helps put them back fast. The pendulum of public opinion about whether to drink water while exercising started to swing from never to always. In 1982, the U.S. military published a paper about the danger that dehydration posed to troops. It was titled, Water as a Tactical Weapon, and implied that hydration gave soldiers an advantage. That paper soon trickled down to endurance athletes as well. In 1985, scientists gave distance runners diuretics to measure dehydration independent of heat and exercise, like if you just showed up dehydrated for a run after work, and found that yes, dehydration, on its own, affects athletic performance. Other studies found that it didn't take much to see a measurable drop. Just a 2% loss in fluid volume would slow you down. In short, dehydration became the boogeyman for athletes, so, for most of his adult life, Leland had heard that water was the cure for what ails you in the heat. And he was definitely ailing. I was feeling for him, but going up and down in the Laguna Mountains over those passes, it was brutal watching him. Because I would get to the top and wait for him. And I'm just, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen, I'm looking down. Finally, he comes around the corner, and I can just see him sweating, sweating, sweating. He's just red-faced, flushed. And every time he gets to the top, it's an achievement. But he's got to sit down, take his pack off, and just lay there for a sec. I was struggling so much up those hills, and my feet were in such pain, and I wasn't making sense. I was thinking I was getting dehydrated, but I kept drinking more and more water. We're in the desert. You have to drink water. He's pounding, pounding water. He's sweating, sweating, sweating. And we eventually um, got to a point where we were close to a road and he just collapsed on the trail like he just went down. 
I remember crying. <laughs> I remember crying as we were at the road because it felt like I was giving up or like quitting and I was so determined and every step I just I was gonna do it and I'd, I'd been so confident and even though you know we'd get back on the trail I just I didn't want to I didn't want to quit right uh, you know like that you know I I remember someone in Missoula an old friend a jerk told me I wouldn't make it 50 miles I, I made it 50 miles but I just felt defeated. The flip side to dehydration, which gets way less attention, is a condition called hyponatremia, a lack of sodium in the bloodstream. In healthy people, it's caused by overhydration, drinking too much water, and it can be deadly. Leland and Alex caught a ride into the nearest town, thinking they would heal up in a few days, but Leland just got worse. They went to the hospital. Yeah, so I had been drinking plenty of water and uh, eating no salt. I just did not listen to anyone. I think I was warned at some point, but it just never occurred to me that I would need that much salt. And our food wasn't that salty. So I, I'm not sure how much longer I would have lived like that. I think it was a pretty life-threatening situation. Um, I I don't remember much of the hospital. I don't remember much until I came home and we were hitchhiking back north, I guess. When the sodium in your bloodstream gets too diluted by water, it causes an electrolyte imbalance. Sodium, potassium, and calcium are all electrolytes. They're minerals in your body that carry an electric charge, either positive or negative. At the cellular level, electrical gradients, that is, having a greater charge on one side of a cell wall than the other, are how the body moves water in and out of cells. And since moving water in and out of cells is, in a very basic way, how your muscles work, you need to maintain the right balance of electrolytes in your blood. Most of the time, we get enough salt in our food to maintain the proper ratios. But if you sweat a lot, for a long time, and you only replace the water, not the salt, you can throw off your electrolyte levels, just trying to stay hydrated. The difficult part about diagnosing hyponatremia is that it presents very similarly to dehydration. People start to feel tired, sluggish, and woozy. They might get disoriented, have a headache, and get muscle cramps. A lot of times people think that even though they're chugging water, they're still dehydrated. We don't have numbers on what Leland's electrolyte levels were when he got to the hospital, but Alex says the nurses were impressed. I think they said, like, you took down maybe five IVs of electrolytes in about an hour. Something the hospital had, or the, the, the nurses had never seen. They were like, this is crazy. <laughs> in fact, hyponatremia is so counterintuitive that the very first case to be published in a medical journal was criticized and debated for decades. It occurred in Durban, South Africa in 1981. A woman named Eleanor Sadler was running in the Comrades Marathon, drank too much water, passed out, and woke up four days later asking, what happened? And the thing was, no one really knew. One side of the debate said that she drank too much. The other side said that was impossible. The human body would pee out that much excess fluid. Her sweat must have had a higher concentration of salt than normal. What actually happened, it turns out, is that when the body does not have enough sodium, it triggers the release of an antidiuretic hormone, forcing the body to retain what little sodium it has left. But since negatively charged water follows positively charged sodium, 
the body retains the extra fluid as well. So the more water you drink, the worse it gets. In any case, no one had ever seen it before, because prior to the rise of sports drinks, no one had felt compelled to drink gallons of water in the span of a few hours. And because it takes hours and hours of sustained drinking, the athletes most susceptible to this problem are the slowest endurance athletes. Not just through hikers using water stops as an excuse to take a break from their blisters, but also your five and six hour marathoners, the folks racing against the time cutoffs and triathlons. The longer they're out there, the more they drink. Between 1983 and 1998, the Ironman triathlon saw nearly 700 cases of hyponatremia. The first fatality at a marathon happened in 1993. In 2002, 13% of Boston marathon runners reported exercise-associated hyponatremia. But it's not just endurance athletes. The Grand Canyon has been seeing a steady uptick in cases of hyponatremia as well. In 2008, a woman died. In 2015, three women on the same rafting trip had to be evacuated by helicopter, each trying to avoid dehydration, each developing symptoms 24 hours after the last one. So the question becomes, how do you protect yourself? And the good news is, most of the time, it's a really simple answer. In most situations, simply drinking when you're thirsty will protect against hyponatremia and dehydration. The bad news is that if you're in the extreme desert heat, or exercising very heavily for a very long time, it turns out that the only way to truly properly hydrate is to weigh your ins and outs. That's right, just like Centorio Centorio and the army dudes in the desert, you've got to get on a super accurate scale. The only way to truly keep track of how much fluid you're losing is to work out for an hour, but make sure that you don't eat or drink anything, or pee. Then take your before and after weight, and the difference is how much you sweat per hour. You do sweat differently at different temperatures and exertion levels, though, so you'll need to do this several times in different conditions. And maybe weighing yourself before and after workouts sounds excessive, but it's actually probably the perfect solution for the kind of people who fall victim to hyponatremia, people who are defined by their immoderation. Although it does seem contrary to everything Leland stands for. How do, how do you two remember this together? Really fondly. Really? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I mean, uh, a lot of this is like, and I know Leland does not like it, to, to bring all this up a lot and he, I commend him for being willing to talk about this because it is an ego bruising story it it um <laughs> it really makes him seem like this strong-headed weak guy who didn't know what he was doing which is not who Leland is at all you know this was just the first time when I think reality really pushed him back down to earth and said hey like you you gotta play within the rules man you know, in biologically, you can't get out of that. Like you can do what you want, but if you get hyponatremic, if you drink too much and sweat too much, this will happen no matter who you are, you know, and, and that happened to him. But it didn't exactly shut him down. Later that same season, after he'd recovered, he walked 1,500 miles from Northern California to Canada on the PCT. The next year, he did the whole trail. Leland still hikes with a lot of gear, but not quite as much as before. He's found a middle ground with himself. Leland is now, this to this day, probably the most accomplished hiker, outdoor person I know. He's done the Pacific Crest Trail. He did the Florida Trail. Uh, he has done the Appalachian Trail. I think it's below him at this point. <laughs> he did the Continental Divide Trail, which is 
which is like the PCT on steroids. I mean, he did the Arizona Trail. He's hiked across both of those, uh, Florida and Arizona completely. He really is one of the most adventurous, capable guys now. Like, because of this, he really is one of the most capable people I know on his own. You can send him out into the woods, and he'll he'll be fine. Hmm. Um, but this is where he started. This is the origin story. Gotcha. Right. This is the... This was the first hurdle he ever had to jump, and he did not jump it. He ran <laughs> right into it. <laughs> but then he spent the next year of his life becoming the best hurdler he possibly could. In fact, Leland is now considered something of an authority on thru-hiking. And he still hates backpacking's preoccupation with weight. His close call with hyponatremia just brought him slightly back down to earth about it. He still puts a lot of stock in being tough and pushing through. And when he talks... People sometimes listen. And now you're you were just on a panel, were you not? No, it's happening this weekend actually in Coeur d'Alene. So. Oh, that's next. Yeah, tell so so give me or just kind of what's the uh, tell me what that is. I think there are three of us that are speaking, and I am representing um, the super heavy anti elitist backpackers union, uh, which is the membership is. Of course, just me. Um, so there are going to be some ultralight hikers there talking about their stuff, and I decided I'd go and respond. Um, you know, talk about my um, just talk about my whole technique. But um, anyway, a lot of people are going to disagree with my methods, so I think it'll be fun to argue with a bunch of hikers this weekend. By his own admission, Leland started out in through hiking as the world's worst student. He wouldn't listen to anyone. And now, after rethinking his whole approach to hydration, cutting a little bit of pack weight, and amassing years of experience, he just might be the world's worst teacher. Yeah, I don't know. I've always just been pugnacious. Truly, I'm usually wrong. I'm usually on the losing end of these arguments. But if I just, <laughs> if I just fight on through it, it should be a good time. This story was produced by me and Alex Ward, with editing and music by Robbie Carver. Additional music by Dennis Funk. This episode was made possible by Saris. Check out their new super durable, super light, super clamp bike rack at saris.com. That's S-A-R-I-S dot com. On our next episode of Double X Factor, we're talking with Sarah McNair Landry. She's an Arctic explorer, an adventurer, and just awesome to talk to. She once kite-skied the Northwest Passage in the Arctic and kite-buggied across the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. She also lives in a tiny home because, she says, when you spend so much time in a tent, it feels huge. Don't miss it. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance in hyponatremia. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. And so I think it was that that spurred us to get a ride back to San Diego. Like, I don't, like, it, it was clear after a few days that you were going to be unable to keep going forward. And sure enough, we show up again at your cousin's house's doorstep. <laughs> just a lot dirtier and smellier than They have a, a beautiful home in La Jolla, and we were just... I mean, I was beat up. I was looking on death's door, I'm sure. I remember looking into the 
into the mirror. I don't, I, I just, did we even announce ourselves? We just showed up at their door. My distant relatives at this beautiful home near the beach in San Diego, their lovely family. We just kind of like stumbled into their house. Like, I remember they had these clean blankets and sheets and I didn't have the energy to do. I went and I burrowed into their white blankets and sheets. Um, and it was so fucked up. We don't know these people. Like, they're not like close. They're not like, you know, my aunt and uncle or even, you know, they're, they're just like people that I had heard of. <laughs> just like, oh, it's just, I'm hurt. <laughs> like, I think we'd already worn out our welcome when we stayed there before we left. Absolutely. And then, like, they finally got rid of us. And then, like, a week later, we're back. And you're like, can you take me to the hospital? <laughs> oh, God. I feel so bad. They were such kind people. I should send them a card or something. I've been too embarrassed to... Anyway...